calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we're going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. My friend Scott doesn't drive. Don't pick on him for it either, unless you want to feel as bad as I did the first time I cracked a joke and he explained himself. Scott had an older brother, Owen, who turned 16 when Scott was only 11. Scott's parents had gotten stuck at a car dealership trying to buy a new family vehicle after passing their old Nissan Altima down to Owen. They called Owen from the dealership and asked him to pick Scott up from his after-school Taekwondo class, and Owen, still eager to drive whenever he got the chance, immediately accepted. To get home, the boys had to drive under the highway bridge. It was a clover-shaped interchange with stoplights controlling the traffic coming off the highway and those just passing underneath. Owen had brought the Altima to a stop at a red light before the bridge. "'How's my driving today, sir?' he asked Scott with exaggerated formality. Scott, always a little nervous by default, said, "'It's fine.' Owen gave his little brother a big, confident smile and patted his shoulder. He said, "'I've got this. You just sit tight.' The light turned green. "'And I'll get you home.' Owen eased the gas pedal down, smoothly accelerating into the intersection. He didn't see the trailerless semi-truck speeding down the off-ramp past the red light and into the intersection until its grill filled the window on his left. And by then, it was far too late. As I spent more time with Scott, I learned the tragedy of his childhood hadn't ended with his brother's death. Less than a month later, Scott's dad had started up the family's new Honda Pilot without opening the garage door. Scott had been the one to find him, too. The note his dad left behind explained he couldn't deal with his guilt over Owen's death. He felt like an irredeemable failure and saw suicide as both a means to punish himself and escape his own suffering. This made Scott hate his father. 
Not only did Scott have his own pain to deal with, now one of the people who was supposed to help him deal with it had abandoned him. His mother stayed alive, but was nearly as absent as his dead dad. Her doctor had prescribed her Valium after her husband's suicide, and when that didn't work, he prescribed Xanax. The drugs were meant to be a temporary patch to help her get through the worst of the grief, but for Scott's mom, they were salvation. They allowed her to taste heaven prematurely, and she never wanted to come back to Earth. Scott's dad's life insurance wouldn't cover suicide, and his mom exchanged their bank account for pills. The bank foreclosed on their home, which left Scott and his mother living out of the Honda Pilot his dad had died in. When a teacher at Scott's school caught wind of this situation, CPS took Scott away. He spent the rest of his teen years in foster care, bouncing from home to home. Some were better than others. Fortunately for Scott, he had one asset that couldn't be foreclosed on or sold for pills. His mind. He was a brilliant student, catching the attention of various teachers as he bounced from school to school. With a collection of scholarships and grants, he managed to get into the same university as me. We were assigned as random roommates in our first semester and have stayed friends ever since. I have to say, while Scott has a darkness to him that I'll never fully understand, he's a fairly normal guy despite everything. We go out together on Friday nights to try and forget about upcoming exams or papers due Monday morning. He attends all of his classes, which is better than I can say, and we often quiz each other and edit each other's papers. Scott even had a girlfriend at one time. It didn't work out, but he handled the breakup as well as anyone could. The Saturday before finals week, Scott received a phone call that I worried would change all of that. The call came at 5.30 in the morning, a time which never brings good news. I was still asleep in my room, but I overheard Scott's end of the conversation after his voice roused me. How do you know it's her? Yeah, okay. Yeah. No, I haven't. Not since I was 12. Scott's voice sounded lower than normal, which told me he had probably been dragged from sleep by the call. I detected something else unusual in his tone. It might have been suspicion. It didn't sound like he fully trusted whoever he was talking to. I put on a pair of sweatpants and stepped out of my room. Scott was standing in the kitchen with an open bag of coffee grounds in one hand and his phone raised to his ear in the other. Uh-huh. Is there anyone else? Okay. Okay. I'll be there, he said. The person on the other line made one last statement. Scott said, Yeah, thanks. Then he hung up. I stood behind him, unsure if he had heard me come out. He turned his head slightly, acknowledging me, before putting the coffee grounds on the counter and filling the coffee maker with water. Over the hissing sound of the water spraying from the tap, Scott said, My mom's dead. The words came out straight and plain, but no sooner had Scott said dead than his head fell forward, his shoulders slumped, and his entire body shook as he sobbed. Water started spilling out of the overflowing coffee maker, but Scott didn't shut it off. I rushed forward to turn off the tap, then put an arm around my friend and let him cry. Once he was able to talk, Scott told me, I honestly thought she'd probably died a while ago. I didn't think I'd ever know what happened to her, so I just made something up in my head. What'd you make up? I asked. I figured she'd OD'd in some back alley and got buried as some unidentified junkie. So, 
I hesitated to ask, what's the real story? Scott wouldn't look up and started breathing loudly through his nose. It must have been two minutes before he moved or made another sound. I didn't think he was going to tell me at all. The apartment had grown so still, I jumped when he suddenly asked, You know what women do when they become junkies, right? What they'll do to get a fix? I nodded, pretty sure of what he meant. Apparently, my mom... He looked up at the ceiling while he drew in a deep breath. Two identical tears fell down his cheeks and erased to his chin. It's okay, man. You don't have to say it, I told him. He clenched his eyes shut and nodded. Well, one of her, uh, customers got too rough. Or maybe he wanted to rob her, I don't know. The cops are supposedly trying to sort it out, but I know they don't actually give a damn what happened to her. Jeez, I'm sorry, man. My voice sounded pathetic in my own ears. What do you say to someone who's heard every comforting cliché, every platitude in the book, since he was a child? No, I'm sorry, Scott said for what I'm about to ask. I know it's a lot, especially with finals coming up. Hey, whatever I can do, I said. They're going to cremate her remains after the autopsy. Since I'm next of kin, they want to give her ashes to me. I need a ride on Monday. Sure, man. I have an exam that day, but it's online. I can make it work. You can just drive me. You don't have to go with me to... Hey, I said. I'll be there. Don't worry. Fast forward to Monday morning. Scott and I made the four-hour drive to his hometown in my little Civic. I felt unusually aware of the music on the radio. At least every other song was about losing someone. I'm sure most of the singers were droning on about lost romance, but in the context of our mission, it was easy to reassign the lyrics' meanings. We arrived at the funeral home where Scott had been instructed to pick up his mother's ashes. I walked in with him, and we approached the front desk, where a woman who looked like she had just stepped out of 1959 greeted us with a smile. She wore too much blush and blue eyeliner. Maybe the makeup was supposed to make her look cheerier, but in the juxtaposition of the drab funeral parlor, she looked like a clown. Hi, I was told to pick up my mom's ashes here, Scott said. The woman gave him a practiced look of sympathetic regard and asked for his mother's name. When he gave it, Another voice spoke up behind us. Scott? Oh, Scott, is that you? A middle-aged woman approached us from behind. She looked ragged but friendly. This is a woman, I thought, who has lived a hard life. Looking back, I wonder how much of what I detected was just grief. Grief seems to take years off of people, especially those who experience a lot of it. Scott looked at this woman with obvious puzzlement, then his face lit up. He asked, Aunt Evelyn? The woman nodded vigorously and tears welled in her eyes. She extended her arms wide and Scott let himself be swallowed in a tight hug. I thought... I thought... Scott stammered. His voice was muffled by his aunt's shoulder. She pushed him back a little, but still held him close. You thought you were the only one left, she said. By blood, maybe, but child, you are not alone. You'll never be alone. You got that? Scott later explained that Evelyn had married his mother's brother, Paul. Paul had tragically died in a farming accident a couple years before Owen's death. When Scott had been removed from his mother's care, his aunt had also been hooked on drugs of some sort and unable to care for him. Any lingering confusion I had around how Scott's mom had fallen into drug addiction evaporated when I learned this. 
Her life seemed to have been marred by tragedy after tragedy. Lump that in with what very well may have been a genetic disposition towards addiction, and what else could you expect? Scott introduced me to his aunt, but I felt like an intruder on their reunion. I excused myself and left them to catch up. Stepping out of the funeral home, I found myself in a big open world I had never seen before. I was in a new old town with nowhere to go, so I pulled out my phone, dropped a pin on the map to lead me back to the funeral home, and started walking east. I chose east because I could see trees above the buildings in that direction. They towered above the roofs, broad even near the top. They looked like oaks to me, although I'm no expert. After a long, heavy weekend and finals looming over me, a walk through nature appealed to a desire to get away, to find peace, and to remind myself that my stress doesn't matter to the world at large. The trees will still stand if I forget to answer a question, the squirrels will still chase each other if I fail an exam. I like to walk in nature because it helps me put my problems in perspective. At least I don't have snakes and hawks trying to snatch me every day. By the time I reached the end of the street, I was lost in thought. I didn't notice the pavement turn into packed gravel as I crossed the portal from suburban civilization into the natural wild. The gravel road cut through enormous trees with some of the thickest trunks I have ever seen. Long, leafy vines hung from many of their branches. Some were connected to one another by dewy spiderwebs that glistened under the occasional sunray that was lucky enough to find a hole in the blanket of leaves above. The tree's thick trunks made it so I could only see a few yards into the woods all around me. The temperature under the trees felt ten degrees cooler, but the air felt thicker. All the moisture evaporating from the vivacious flora surrounding me was trapped by the dense foliage above. The gravel road became less defined over distance. Soon, a grassy patch emerged in the middle, turning the road into two tan lines cutting through the woods. I had to wonder why this road existed at all. Did it emerge on the other side, or just dead end in the woods? Soon, the tan lines were infected with splotches of green. Moss and clover and dandelions sprouted sporadically along the gravel surface, threatening to reclaim the road entirely. I stared into the woods as I walked. The trees kept me from seeing very far until I found a bizarre disruption in their constant pattern. I discovered a straight path that cut through the trees and allowed me to see deep into the woods. Sunbeams sliced the air between the trees, lining this path like spotlights. Curious, I stepped off of the dwindling road. My right foot tapped against something that sounded wooden. I looked down and saw my ears had detected the correct tone. An old wooden sign lay flat beneath overgrowth that had tried to claim it for the forest. I stooped and raised the sign back up. Yellow paint worn by years of neglect spelled out, Misery's Path. I glanced up the narrow line running between the trees and wondered if this strange gash in the forest was the path the sign referred to. I wondered if the path had been maintained at one time, long before it had been overtaken by the grasses that now covered it. The sign spelled out more than the creepy name. It seemed I had literally stumbled upon a local legend. I had to guess at some of the faded words, but the sign more or less read, All who follow this path beware. Some say it's haunted, others say it is cursed. All agree those who travel down this path must face their darkest misery. Travel forward at your own risk. The final warning might have been cute if there hadn't been a star next to it. Another star near the bottom of the sign indicated, City Ordinance 148.7 
Had the city legally abdicated responsibility for what happened to people on this path? Was it really written into the city code? Now I had to know. My curiosity grew too strong, like a vortex pulling me in. I couldn't have walked away if I'd wanted to. I marked another pin on my phone so I could find the road again if I got lost, then began my journey down Misery's path. The friendly sounds of the woods, chirping birds, chittering squirrels, started to dwindle as I left the road behind. The only sound left to me was the rush of leaves above. Occasionally, a low wind howled through the dense trees. Those trees seemed to be shepherding me along, ensuring I stayed true to the path. The air became even thicker. Soon I could barely see through it. Fog settled in all around me. Fog which I had a feeling was local to this specific place. One footstep sounded wet, muddy, and normal, and the next struck something hard and resonant. Wood again, I thought. Only this time it was underfoot instead of above ground. I looked down, barely able to see my own feet in the fog. If I squinted, I could make out the faint lines of floorboards. As I strained my eyes, it looked like the boards actually ran behind me too. I stopped for a minute, confused. I knew I had been walking on dirt, so how could the boards be running along the ground I had left behind? I looked up and was shocked further. Walls had sprouted up around me where the trees had been before I looked down. They were also difficult to see through the fog, but I had no doubt they were there. I walked over to one and tapped it. The texture of it felt like plaster, and it also felt vaguely familiar. I walked along the wall until my curiosity gave way to the uneasy feeling that I was somewhere I didn't belong. Maybe even somewhere dangerous. I decided to turn back. Spinning on my heels and making to run back the way I'd come, I found another wall had formed behind me. And there was more. An enormous stained glass window glistened beyond the fog. Light shone through it, turning the low cloud around me a reddish purple as all the window's colors blended together. I took a hesitant step toward the window, and a dark object emerged in the fog. Recognition settled heavily in my head and heart. The shapes and figures in the stained glass became clear. I recognized the dark object as a pulpit. Not just any pulpit, but the one I had been preached to from for my entire childhood. I spun around and took everything in once more with enlightened eyes. Impossibly, I was standing in the chapel of my childhood church. I pulled out my phone and opened the map to see where my phone thought I was. The two pins I had dropped were over 500 miles away, according to the GPS. My location, as shown on the screen, was my hometown, not Scott's. I started to panic. My limbs felt loose and weak as I spun around inside the chapel searching for the exit. However, there was one distinct difference between the chapel I knew as a kid and the one I was standing in now. This one had no doors. Where the double doors should have been was just a blank white wall. Hey, Lugie, a voice sneered behind me. I recognized it in an instant, almost faster than I recognized my forgotten nickname. It's Logan, I said, hearing how stupid I sounded. I turned, ready to face the bully who had haunted my childhood. His name was Max, and back then, he had stood a head taller than me even though we were both ten. As I turned, I was horrified to find he still towered above me. He still looked like a ten-year-old in the face, but he must have been at least six feet tall. 
He snorted and spat at my feet. Hey, look, Loogie, it's your twin, Max said, pointing at the green spit wad next to my muddy shoe. I felt the same fear and anxiety Max had caused me as a child. I tried to say, get the hell out of my way, but my voice, my ten-year-old voice, actually said, please, Max, just leave me alone. Pastor Frank isn't here to save you this time, Max said. No, he wasn't. Pastor Frank was outside helping wrangle all the other kids at summer Bible camp. I don't know how I remembered that, but I knew it with perfect certainty. Now it's just us. Tall Max reached for my shirt. His fingertip brushed my nose as I stepped back into the side, wedging myself into a pew. I remembered this scene as if I were still ten years old, but this time I had to navigate my escape with an adult's width and weight. I pushed myself along with one knee propped on the seat as if I were pushing a stalled motorcycle until I reached the other end of the narrow pew. Max was running around to the back of the church to get around the rows and intercept me. I had to run forward, toward the pulpit, the organ, and most importantly, the rows of choir benches situated on the balcony above. I knew I could climb faster than Max. At least I hoped I still could. He had chased me up a tree once when Pastor Frank had thankfully been there to call him off. If I could beat him onto the balcony, I could hide in the choir benches and make him think I ran to the stairs to go out the back door. My limbs felt long and stupid as I tried to scramble up the organ's pipes. I worried they wouldn't hold my adult form, but my worry was wasted. I managed to pull myself onto the balcony just as tall Max started his own climb. I scurried to the door above the stairs, opened it to give the illusion of my escape, then cowered behind the choir benches. I wondered, now blessed with the wisdom of adulthood, why I hadn't just run down those stairs, out the back door, and called for help. Had I wanted to do what I knew I was going to do next? See, as I crouched behind those benches, I had figured out what I was experiencing. I was living out a memory. Max's extended height and my larger body didn't affect the events or their outcomes. They were simply mechanical solutions to the discrepancy between my size now and at the time of this terrible memory. Max hoisted himself up, held himself with two stiff, trembling arms, then scraped one shoe over the edge, onto the balcony. His eyes darted to the open door as he stood. He appeared to doubt himself for a second. I watched as he clearly questioned his own motives. He would take a step forward, then back. Then he looked down the way he had come up. I thought he might climb down and forget about me, and I wanted to let him. I wanted to watch him retreat, then go down to the back door and let myself out. Out of the church, and, hopefully, out of this moment scarred in my past. But I was only an observer. I couldn't control myself, even though I could feel everything. Well, that's not quite true. I couldn't feel everything. I could feel the cold floor, the hard corners of the bench's leg digging into my shoulder, but I couldn't feel the burning hatred I remembered. I couldn't feel the desire, the sinister temptation, which drove my next move. Against my current will, I lunged out from behind the choir benches at the boy plotting his descent. I collided with Max and saw the marvelous shine in his wide, fearful eyes. What I didn't see there was any understanding. His eyes asked why, all the way down, until Max's head cracked open on the floor in front of the pulpit. In real life, in the past, I had screamed for help after climbing back down the organ. I had told everyone, including Pastor Frank, 
that Max had told me he could climb onto the balcony and that I hadn't believed him. I said he had done it safely, but then he told me he was going to jump off. I told them all I had asked him not to, but that he had done it anyway and landed on his head. This story worked because I was known as a good kid. No one, not one child, parent, police officer, doctor, no one considered I could have committed a murder. But I had. And in the present, I couldn't climb down or scream. The vision forced me to stare down at Max's folded body, now returned to its correct size. He was smaller than I remember. I had to watch the pool of blood spreading from the top of his head in a steady flow, creep under the pews, staining the wood. I had to look into his dull eyes, pointed slightly apart, and reckon with the fact that I had taken the light from behind those eyes and made sure the last thing to have ever filled them was fear. I was allowed to sit, put my hands over my eyes, and cry. A bird chirped somewhere behind me, and I raised my head from my palms. I had been returned to the woods and what I hoped to be the present time. A quick glance at my phone told me it was so, although I had apparently been trapped in my memory for over an hour. The path continued deeper, but I turned tail and ran back the way I came. I wondered if Misery's path showed you darker things the further you went, and I didn't want to know what lived inside my head that was darker than murder. About halfway down the path, my phone vibrated erratically in my hand. A rush of notifications filled the screen at once, and I realized I had been out of cell service range. Most of the notifications were texts from Scott wondering where I had gone. I didn't respond right away. I was still running, trying to get off the path. I planned on texting him as soon as I stepped past that fallen sign and onto the gravel road. I finally reached the end of the path, jumped over the fallen sign, and nearly collided with Scott. He had been blocked from my view by one of the giant trees. What are you doing here? He asked me. I could tell he was concerned. I could ask you the same question, I replied. How'd you find me? Last time we went out, you shared your location with me, Scott said, pointing to his phone. You disappeared off the map, but I could still see where your pins were. I said, ah, well, I was just killing time while you caught up with your aunt. We can go now. Why are you so out of breath? You seem off, Scott said. Oh, I just, uh, went for a jog, I lied. But my lie proved futile. Scott noticed the fallen sign and, curious, picked it up. Must face their darkest misery, Scott mumbled as he read. Huh. Hey, Logan, you think this trail can handle my darkest misery? I'd probably make whatever's haunting it run away scared. Don't test it, I said, seriously. I immediately regretted this. Scott had only been joking. I don't think he had had any intention of exploring Misery's path, but when he heard the tone of my voice and saw the worry in my face, his attitude shifted. Wait, did you see something? He asked. I didn't answer, afraid I would only tempt him further, but that didn't work either. Without another word, Scott turned his back to me and started walking down the path. Scott, that's really not a good idea, I called after him. He either didn't hear or didn't care. I cursed myself for not playing it cool. If I had let Scott get much further, he would have disappeared into the fog. Something within me was screaming not to let that happen. I had a gut feeling that if I let Scott vanish, I might not ever see him again. So I followed him. I had to jog until I caught up with him. Then we walked together in silence. I was afraid to tell Scott what had happened to me up the trail because I had never told him about Max. I had never told anyone. 
Instead, I just walked beside him, hoping maybe the two of us being together would prevent either of us from slipping into some terrible memory. But then the garage door appeared. It appeared through the fog, and the nearer we went to it, the clearer it became. The rest of the house materialized around it. The house seemed to have shoved all of the gigantic trees aside to make room for itself. One of my feet scuffed pavement, and I looked down to see a driveway marked with colorful chalk drawings beneath my feet. The garage door was lined with little windows near the top. They were glowing a dull yellow. I took a deep breath that made me cough. The air tasted odd and made me feel nauseous. I looked at Scott to see if he had noticed this, but Scott had become like stone. He was paralyzed by the sight of the garage, the house. I put a hand on Scott's shoulder and asked, Hey, are you all right? This is my house, he said distantly. His feet scuffed as he broke away and ran to the side of the garage. I had to follow him. It didn't take me long to realize, as I'm sure you have by now, we had entered one of Scott's most miserable memories. I caught up with Scott as he reached a door in the side of the garage. He had tears streaming down his cheeks as he opened it. A cloud billowed out, making us both hack and cough, but it didn't stop Scott. I had to chase him into the billowing garage holding my shirt over my mouth and nose as I went. Scott opened the door to the Honda Pilot parked inside with the engine running and the headlights on, but there he stopped. A man, presumably Scott's father, was sitting back against the seat. His head was lulled to the side and his face was purple. His eyes were open and pointed downward, bulging a little from their sockets. His mouth hung open. His tongue was swollen and black. Scott screamed and would have fallen backward if I hadn't caught him. I tugged at his shirt, but he wouldn't follow. I gave up and instead lunged into the open car door, reaching past Scott's father and pressing the garage door opener on the visor. A motor whirred to life above us and the garage door raised to let the poison gas cloud escape. While I was already halfway in the car, I pulled the keys out of the ignition. As the garage door raised, blue and red lights started flashing all around us, lighting up the entire garage. I looked out, but couldn't see past the clearing gas cloud. Scott ran toward the lights. I chased him, ducking under the rising garage door. My feet hit pavement again, but it looked different this time. It was darker, almost black, and I saw a broken yellow line next to me. I was standing in a road, and Scott was running down it toward the flashing emergency lights. In the fog, the outlines of vehicles started to crystallize before me. I saw a fire truck parked near an overturned car. A semi with no trailer sat crooked, halfway in a ditch. Next, I started to see the shadows of people walking in and around the scene. A paramedic stepped aside, and I saw a little boy where I had been standing. The next sight explained in an instant where and when we were. Scott approached the little boy, and the little boy became him. They morphed together like two wet clay figurines smashed into one form. I stopped and took in every detail then. The flipped car was a Nissan Altima. The front of the semi was smashed in and mangled, and two paramedics were wheeling a covered gurney away from the wreck. This was the moment Scott's life changed forever. I wanted to get close, to comfort him, but I couldn't. It's hard to explain why. I wasn't held back physically, but despite my desire to comfort my friend, 
Something in my mind just would not let me near him. Instead, I walked over to where three uniformed men were talking to a distraught fourth man wearing a t-shirt and jeans. The man was trying to explain something, but he was having some difficulty. One of the cops said, So you admit you didn't notice the lights change. I'm sorry, the distraught trucker said. I understand you're upset. We were just trying to figure out how this happened, okay? Did you or did you not see the light change? Another officer asked. I don't know, I don't know, the trucker replied. I had just gotten a call, a, a phone call. I was pulling off because I couldn't control myself after, after they told me my son, my son Max. The fourth officer approached the three interviewing the trucker. He pulled one of them aside and I moved in to eavesdrop. The name Max had set me on high alert. Hey, so I just ran this guy's name and an alert came back from out of state, the officer said. His kid just died in an accident at a church camp. Ah, oh, jeez, the other officer replied. How many kids are going to die today? My stomach twisted in a knot. I looked back at Scott, whose face had melted with sadness as he relived the worst day of his life. A day that, I suddenly realized, had been my fault. It was all my fault. After I killed Max, Owen had been killed because the trucker, Max's dad, was overwhelmed with grief. Scott's father had killed himself because of Owen's death. His mother had eventually died because of all of it. Scott's entire childhood, his whole life, had been upended because of me. Because of that one moment, that one fatal decision when I was 10 years old. I returned to Scott, able to approach him now even though I didn't want to. I put a comforting hand on his shoulder, but it felt dirty. I felt like a liar. I wondered if I would ever be able to tell him what I had just learned. Scott looked up into my eyes, and the flashing lights, the wrecked cars, the emergency personnel, all faded into the fog again. We were standing on that narrow path among the dense trees once more. And this time, I noticed, we had reached the end of Misery's path. Let's get out of here, I said. Scott wiped his eyes and nodded. We were not accosted by any more visions or memories as we walked back to the road. We didn't speak other than to point out minor hazards on the ground. Together, we returned to the funeral home where Scott said farewell to his aunt before claiming his mother's ashes. Ashes from a body I may as well have burned myself. We spent the four-hour ride home in total silence. Scott and I have never discussed what happened on Misery's path. He's hinted at it before once straight up asking me if I had seen anything when I went down the path alone. I told him I had, but didn't say what. I think Scott learned not to ask again. He's still my closest friend. We're like brothers. And I suppose I owe him a brother. Sometimes I naively wonder if what I learned on Misery's path was the truth or just the dark magic of those woods playing a trick on me. Nothing else in the visions of memory had been altered or false, though. So why should my guilt have been? I think I'm just looking for some way to escape the blame. It's not like I knew what would happen. But then I wonder, if I had known, would it have stopped me? Would it have made any difference at all? You made it out. Congratulations. 
If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. If you want more creepy content, including the images that accompany each story, follow me on Instagram at thewarningwoods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the warning woods. Thank you for listening. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.